Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say hello, welcome, good to have you with us. It is the final day of October. No trick-or-treats on today's program. It's all going to be just straightforward. I'm not going to pull out the, uh, the, the sheets here and scare anybody. Listening to my program down through the years, probably frightening enough. <laughs> More than sufficient to get you through any, uh, any All Hallows Eve. We are going to talk about some scary things on today's program as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. Addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Hey, thanks for many of the nice notes and calls we've received on the tale of our broadcast yesterday featuring... Dr. Jim Daly from Focus on the Family. And if you missed yesterday's broadcast, highlights of the 26th annual KFAX Pastors Appreciation Event, you can check it out online. All of our programs are available in podcast form. Simply go to kfax.com and under the podcast section, look for Lifeline. All right, let's get down to cases. We've got some news for you. Um, First, good news. um, The Kincaid Fire, they're finally getting under control. What's been alarming about this event is the fact that it's now going down in history as the largest wildfire in Sonoma County history. So far, some 77,000 acres have been charred, already 20,000 acres bigger than the Nuns Fire and 40,000 acres larger than the Tubbs Fire of two years ago, both of which ripped through the county in October. No fatalities have been reported in the Kincaid, and structure fires have been limited to about 300. That's compared to over 6,500 structures destroyed just two years ago. Meanwhile, to the south of us, Ventura County residents now returning to their homes. And as they do so, there's increasing evidence that the Easy Fire was sparked by utility equipment. Sounding familiar? Southern California Edison notifying state regulators about an equipment malfunction near the fire's origin, where security camera footage demonstrates and appears to support that assessment, showing a spark in the darkened sky early Tuesday morning. Within minutes, flames can be seen erupting just below the tower. Of course, it's not just SoCal Edison in trouble. PG&E, boy, they're everybody's whipping boy these days, aren't they? They're continuing to work to restore power to nearly 37,000 customers that remain affected by the fourth so-called public safety power shutoff this month. Crews continue to inspect power lines and are repairing any wind-related damage before they can re-energize lines to affected areas. At this point, the utility reports having found some 143 incidents of damage. They say these incidents could have started a wildfire if the power lines had been energized. Customers still remain affected in portions of some 12 counties, including Marin, Napa, Sonoma counties, right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Early on in the incident, it was perhaps not only insensitive but premature to do any analysis of what has gotten us here, and most importantly, whether or not Californians are really 
ready to embrace what some at PG&E have called the new norm. So let's talk about it now. Lawrence McQuillan joins us, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. Lawrence, great to have you back on the program again. Um, Let's talk about this. Um, PG&E seemingly trying to do the best to try and reduce incidents of wildfires by de-energizing equipment, even though it's thrown upwards of 2 million Californians into dark for prolonged periods of time. Most ironically, the largest fire so far, the Kincaid Fire, seems to have been started by equipment that was not de-energized, which says to me that PG&E is continuing to fall short of the high water mark that they ought to be reaching for in providing services to Californians. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back, Craig. It's great to be with you. Um, and I think what you said early on is fantastic news that you know no one perished from the Kincaid fire. I mean, I think that's a huge blessing um, and wonderful news. But um, yeah, I mean, PG&E and the other utilities are kind of in a box, right? I mean, if they leave the power on, it increases the risk of wildfires. If they de-energize, then it's a huge inconvenience, and also you create other public safety risks as well, from traffic accidents and crime and looting or whatever. So you're kind of substituting one potential public safety risk for another. Um, And quite frankly, I mean, there's no quick solution, but there are a lot of things that we should be considering. One of them, obviously, is to insulate the power lines. The, both in the Easy Fire and the Kincaid Fire, if they were started by the power lines, it, it's more than likely either the lines touched each other or a limb fell on the lines or a tree fell on the lines causing a spark. Insulating is the cheaper way rather than undergrounding. A lot of people are talking about undergrounding, but that's much more expensive. It might make sense in very remote areas where it's hard to get to if a fire starts, but um, but I think it for practicality and cost-wise, it's probably not the solution you use most of the time. I mean, that's two really obvious things that need to be done as soon as can be done, and it could be really ramped up quicker if instead of spending about $2.4 billion a year on green energy investments, solar and wind, if they took that money and focused it on doing as quickly as they could these public safety upgrades, I think um, we'd be closer to the goal uh, much faster, and there should just be a moratorium on all of this green investment, this transition over to windmills and solar and put that on hold and let's focus on the bigger problem right now which is public safety. Yeah, no no doubt. And and I think there's also a degree of public education that needs to take place here and you've touched on some of it Lawrence in the sense that it's easy to say, well, why doesn't PG&E just bury all the lines? Well, easier said than done. Not only is that a huge consumption of time when you talk about the tens of thousands of miles of lines that crisscross Northern California, but the expense. uh, I mean, let's let's face it, even if this were a public entity and they had access to the California Treasury, it's about $3 million per mile to bury lines underground. That's compared with the installation of above-ground lines of about $800,000 a mile. And so it just, from a time standpoint, 
um, and an expenditure, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the other thing that people need to be aware of, and I've suffered this in my own neighborhood where I'm fortunate enough to have the lines underground, that also means underground <laughs> and water seeps in underground. And when power vaults get flooded in extreme weather conditions, your power still goes off. So it, it might not present the same types of liabilities, but it presents liabilities nevertheless. And I suppose long term, doesn't it really come down to the fact that PG&E has been found repeatedly negligent of a lot of the maintenance that it should have been doing? Right. And I mean, a perfect example of that is this year, you know, we're after the wine country fires, after the Paradise fires. In 2019, they allocated a sum of money for PG&E to do basic excess fuels management, removing vegetation away from their power lines. And so far this year, they've only spent and done about a third of the promised fuel reduction activities that they said they would do. So even though the money's been allocated for it, and even though we know what happens when you don't do this preventative maintenance, so we really can't take PG&E on its word anymore. They don't even do what they promised to do. And and so I think there has to be a lot more pressure put on them. Or the other alternative is to rethink entirely our approach to providing electricity in the state of California. We could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and and I think maybe we need to get a little bit more serious about it because, you know, as as consumption of power uh, continues to rise, let's face it, we're not putting in nuclear power plants anymore. The last time I checked, new rivers were not being created, so the ability to go with hydroelectric power has kind of run its course. And while there are other cleaner solutions, such as natural gas, uh, a lot of the environmental folks don't even like that. And yet, you know, all of us want to... Um, you know, um, send an email of protest, you know, on our computer plugged into the wall, getting power from, you guessed it, Pacific Gas and Electric. Maybe we do need, as Californians, to take a little bit more serious look at not just alternate means to uh, power consumption, such as off-grid solar, but but also, and I want to talk about this when we come back after the break, Lawrence, should we be a little bit more careful when it comes to where we decide to set up homes and residences? I mean, let's face it, PG&E is delivering the power to where the demand is, but one of the things that has changed drastically in the last 20 or 30 years is the continued encroachment, and I understand, hey, it's beautiful to live in the forest. Just realize that you're not only displacing Bambi, but you're creating other liabilities for said forest when civilization meets the rural areas. Let's talk about that and more as our conversation with Lawrence McQuillan continues. He's Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. Information available about their good work online at independent.org. That's independent.org. 516, we're going to swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center, get you updated on the Thursday ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's no doubt that over the last probably a half a dozen years, California has suffered enormous losses, both in loss of property and, most critically, loss of life in a number of significant wildfires. And as a lifelong resident of this state, frankly, historically, I don't recall, <laughs> I don't recall growing up 
with any of this. One of the big questions is, well, what has changed here? And how can we, not only as ratepayers and consumers, as well as the state and the utility, do a lot better job? You mentioned something, Lawrence, on the uh, get-go of our conversation tonight about PG&E doing a better job of protecting its equipment and better insulating the lines. And it's funny, I went to go see a friend up in the uh, Saratoga Hills earlier today, and as I was driving up and looking at the lines crisscrossing the road, I happened to notice that some had insulation on them, others did not. A lot of people maybe think that wires outside are like the extension cords in your house. They're all insulated. Such is sadly usually not the case. It, frankly, it's a lot cheaper to put up lines out of reach and without any uh, sheathing or insulation on them. But maybe that's something PG&E starts, needs to start to consider doing. Yeah, you're right. I think uh, the majority of the lines aren't insulated. And um, the federal judge who's overseeing PG&E's probation for the San Bruno explosion, that was his main conclusion and recommendation to PG&E, was to insulate um, its wires across the state as quickly as it could, because he noticed that repeatedly, not only in, by PG&E, but also fires in, in Southern California have been started by uh, un uninsulated lines uh, in contact with each other or in contact with limbs of trees. And, you know, in addition to that, I think the other thing, too, is that, and you kind of alluded to this before the break, uh, we need to be considering alternatives, not just to traditional grid sources, but also better prepared in the event of emergencies. I mean, didn't we find out in the first power shutoff here uh, early part of October that, oh, to the shock and horror of everybody going through the Caldegat tunnel, the tunnel had no generators to power the fans to keep the exhaust out of the tunnel. And they'd have been in the plans, quote-unquote, for over five years, and it wasn't until this event that they got around to it, which says to me not only is PG&E uh, derelict here, but so too is local government. And let's face it, need we be reminded we live in earthquake country? Right. And also, I think a lot of people who have solar panels on their house believe that they could live off of that what if the power went down only to discover and learn that you need a battery backup system in order to store that power to use it when the power from the grid goes off and those batteries aren't cheap they're about six thousand eight thousand dollars um so a lot of solar power people who thought they were self-reliant and detached decoupled from the grid could make it on their own discovered that that's not the case so now they're going to need another significant investment now let's talk about ways in which some of the investment is maybe not going in the right direction. Um, PG&E over 2018 paid the top eight executives combined $25 million. They managed to pay out in the same period of time $3.5 million in bonuses. I don't know, for a company that's facing bankruptcy, $11 million, a billion dollars with a B in liabilities related to the, uh, the Tubbs and Campfire of two years ago. How is it that they're able to use ratepayer dollars to not only pay these exorbitant wages, but then to turn around, or salaries to the executives, but then turn around and give them bonuses? Bonuses for doing what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was disgraceful. And, um, you know, I can understand the public is, being, is outraged over it, and rightly so. I mean, they do it because the California Public Utilities Commission allows them to do it. Um, but I think that there's I'm hoping that this whole bankruptcy will open up opportunities that the, fed, the federal judge overseeing this bankruptcy will allow 
local communities to submit plans to buy the distribution grid for their community and start their own utility if they want to. Sacramento does it. They have a customer-owned, private, nonprofit utility that didn't go blacked out during the recent episode. They stayed up and running. Um, so there's other models, I think, that we need to explore where communities could be more self-sufficient and self-reliant and not dependent on this behemoth monstrosity of a regulated monopoly that obviously can't do the job correctly and try to break away from it. So I'm hoping the judge um, will entertain serious offers. Uh, San Francisco made one um, to buy up their distribution system. Now, I'm not talking about a city government running a utility um, because I don't think San Francisco would do a good job of it. I think the city itself, but I think the customers a, a mutual is what these used to be called. A customer-owned nonprofit utility makes a lot of sense. Well, and, and the other way, thing too is to to pull in a greater degree of not only uh, accountability, but you know, l- l- let's face it. Even with the most recent power shutdowns, we find out on the backside, no government officials, no one from the PUC was involved in any of the decision making. Um, they did a better job this round, first round in early October. Communication was absolutely awful. Although I still he- heard from people over the last couple of weeks that thought their power was going off when it didn't and didn't think the power was going off when it did. So there's, you know, it, it's complicated there. And the other thing, too, we've learned that in 2019, and we're, you know, practically uh, 10 months, we're shy of a day of 10 months uh, into the year, only a third of the tree maintenance that PG&E had set out to do this year has been completed. Somebody's got to do a better job in holding these people accountable. Well, you know, that's the problem with having a monopoly, right? You have guaranteed customers. The customers are hostage. They have 16 million customers from Eureka down to Bakersfield. They're the sole provider. You can't go anywhere else. So, again, to get back to my earlier recommendation, I want to see some decentralization and competition infused into this system. And one way to do it is have the bankruptcy judge step up and say, okay, if you're a local community, you put forward a, a, a reasonable proposal to buy up your distribution system from PG&E and generate your own power, go for it. We'll, we'll approve it. And I think that way you can start to infuse the whole system with some competition, which we don't have. I mean, essentially, California, you have three major private utilities to provide the power for almost all of the state. I mean, there's a few exceptions. As I mentioned, Sacramento, Alameda has its own power system. It's not relying on PG&E, and they stayed up and running. They never blacked out the whole time. So I think um, these more decentralized, customer-owned approach would be a much better model going forward for California, and I think a lot of areas should consider it. Yeah, especially when you know we're, we're told over the last couple of weeks, get used to it, it's the new normal. I, there's nothing normal about this. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, there are third-world countries that have a more stable power system than our own, and I realize the intent is to try and stave off greater disasters, although, as we've seen, even those efforts have been met with dismal failure. Um, there's a there's a long road ahead of us, to be sure, and uh, let's keep this dialogue going. And we certainly appreciate the good work that you're doing, Lawrence, and your organization to, um, to keep consumers and uh, taxpayers um, more informed as to where things stand and, most importantly, what some of our options are. Thank you so much, Craig. 
Lawrence McQuillan, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation. We need some of that good entrepreneurial innovation with this challenge, don't we? Um, Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute of Oakland. Information on the web. Check them out at independent.org. That's independent.org. Always a good education visiting with Lawrence McQuillan. 5.30 from KFAX. Let's uh, see how we might get educated now in the world of traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation, 535, as we uh, press ahead here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. Joining me now is Ronald Stein. Ronald is the founder and ambassador for energy and infrastructure at PTS Advance. And, uh, Ronald, welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us. We've been talking, as you've been uh, perhaps hearing some of the dialogue, about the recent tragic California wildfires And, of course, there have been a whole variety of scenarios put forward in relationship to uh, the cause behind all of this. And and to be sure, mainstream media has loved to uh, whip up some of the the paranoia related to this. Uh, We've invited you on today to give us a little bit of a calm perspective, especially as we uh, relate back to uh, potential origins. I mean, for example, we get the impression that, well, gee, these wildfires are singularly something new, and maybe many of us to a recent memory don't recall experiencing this. But hasn't there been a major paradigm shift, too, in recent years that heretofore not, did not exist? For example, the notion that everybody loves nature, so, hey, let's build our communities right around nature. And suddenly we have this invasion of urban areas into rural areas, and oftentimes the two just don't meet well. Craig, you're right. Uh, it all started, uh, you know, back with Obama back in 2012. But you know, in California, housing is very expensive, so people are moving further out, further out, and they're moving into the forest. And in Obama in 2012, he rewrote uh, most of the um, green registration legislation for forestry. So now we can't cut trees. If we're dead, we can't cut them down. We can't thin them out to you know, make them healthier. And the utility companies are caught between a rock and a hard place. They've got to deliver power, but they used to be able to control their right-of-way to make sure there was nothing that was going to basically you know, catch fire in the right-of-way. Now they can't do that. And so they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Now to protect them from liability lawsuits, because people are claiming when a tree falls on the line and breaks a line, that sparks causing a fire, this utility's problem. Well, to protect themselves, they went to the you know, utility commission and got permission to uh, you know, shut down the service. And now they have a public safety power shutoff events to protect them from the liability lawsuits. It's a, it's a catch-22. It does almost seem to be a bit of a vicious cir- a circle here, doesn't it? I mean, uh, th- this notion that, well, you know, we need to be, uh, you know, protecting old growth and things of this sort. Well, of course, it's the old growth that encroaches into the areas where trees are. And to tell a utility company that um, the the right-of-way, typically like a railroad where you own so much property on either side of the line or they have accountability for 
for and therefore rights to and responsibility to maintain the area that runs immediately around where their lines run uh, to tell them you can't manage any of that because we're concerned that you're you know we we're we're losing too much greenery here in the state i mean uh, look at the results yes it's it's really pathetic but that's that's the way it is you know I, i'm an engineer and i kind of relate that to a, a simple solution you have a leaky boat now you have a choice you can either plug the leak or get a larger sump pump to take the water out and that's the situation we have with the, the, the utility companies and the fires you can fix the leak i.e you know trim the trees do some forest management or keep throwing more fema dollars at it and uh, that's endless and uh as you know, Washington D.C. is getting kind of, you know, irked about that, and uh, is challenging California that, you know, they don't want to keep throwing money into California. If, you know, you solve the problem, get well, rid of the cause. And, the and you know. You, you, at the end of the day, Ronald, even if the the bucket were bottomless and there was an unlimited supply of money um, living here, I'm going to tell you, nobody wants to go through uh, the terror of watching these wildfires. It, I mean, it's worse than watching a horror movie. And then to see the tremendous loss of, of, of property and even worse so, life, uh, fortunately, the, the death count on these most recent events have not been uh, nearly as frightening as they were two years ago. But one death is one death too many. And, you know, to suggest, as we've heard the utility companies say, that, well, this is the new normal, basically saying to Californians, get used to it. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the right solution. And what I find ironic about this is, from a, from a larger uh, climate change weather perspective, look, this is not the first time that California has gone through droughts, although technically we're not in a drought. Uh, we, we have weathered, quote-unquote, these storms, poor, poor choice of words, perhaps, but for, forgive my faux pas. But we have been able to survive these sorts of high wind, dry condition experiences going back decades. What seems to be different now is, that there's less degree of forest and uh, growth management. Part of that, quite frankly, orchestrated and mandated by Washington, D.C., the fools that they are, coupled with this, as I suggested, this encroachment. You know, would I like to live in the middle of Yosemite woods? Absolutely. But then you think about, well, to live there means running phone lines and running water lines and sewer lines and power lines, and suddenly you've turned Yosemite into an urban area in the middle of what is distinctly a rural area. Are we any surprise then that when the two meet that there's this clash? Exactly. And Mother Nature is going to win. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's almost like going back to the, uh, the pioneer days. Um, you know, if you can't rely on power from the utility company or water from the water company, you're back in the pioneer days. And, you know, to protect them for the liability lawsuits, you know, what choice do they have? You know, if you're going to, they know the lawsuits are going to come on these fires, and so well, you've got to just turn off the power to try and turn off the lawsuits. So it's, it's a catch-22. And, you know, unless we rewrite those forestry laws, you know, nothing's going to change. But isn't this, though, at the end of the day, in, in, from your, your perspective, your professional perspective and analysis, Ronald, isn't this sort of a 
a multi-pronged approach. In other words, there's not one easy or singular solution that's going to fix this. For example, the previous guest we talked about, well, some people say, why can't PG&E bury all the power lines underground like they have in certain neighborhoods? Well, $3 million a mile, do the math, you'll find out how impractical that is real quick. But as we talk about things like uh, better growth management, better forest management, um, greater degree of accountability to, to maintain equipment at the PG&E level, coupled with what seems to be our insatiable. And I get it. I'm a Californian. I, I, I know we, we love the grandeur of the beauty that we're surrounded by. It just isn't always practical to try to drop ourselves right in the middle of it, pretend like we're in the middle of a forest, and yet we want all the conveniences of living in urban areas. So isn't it ultimately in the final analysis there's a little bit of guilt and responsibility to, to be spread around everywhere here? Exactly right. I mean, obviously, the power companies can do their thing, but uh, the residents, uh, they can do their things, too. They can do a little bit more to, you know, fireproof the house, maybe instead of making it out of wood, make it out of something that's more fire-resistant. And, uh, you know, there are fire-resistant efforts. It might take a little bit more money, but to go through the trauma of losing your house, it might be worth a few extra bucks to try and fireproof a house and, uh, you know, make it out of, you know, brick or make it out of, you know, steel, but, uh, you know, something that it's not going to burn because wood is phenomenal fuel, and these houses are made out of wood. You know, once you get started, uh, look out. I mean, I, I saw my house being built, and you know, from the ground up, and the amount of two-by-fours and lumber, it was amazing, truckloads. And I was thinking, geez, that's a lot of fuel. And obviously the drywall goes up, so when the house is complete, you don't see that. But if a fire starts, it finds it. And that's a lot of fuel. And, you know, you, you hate to once again call on government to have to uh, flex its muscle, but, hey, folks, maybe a little bit of common sense here, too, as Ronald suggests. Uh, we, we build homes out of wood. We put them in um, what are really forested areas, and then we put a, compos- a composition shingle roof on it. Now, granted, it's perhaps um, less fire-prone than cedar or wood shingles, but the embers fly, and it gets a little bit of heat going, and after a while, a little bit of heat can melt the tar, and before you know it, there's just a wood deck underneath that. So how about a requirement? If you want to live in these areas, you have to have a tile roof or some kind of a roof material that is impervious to flame. It just There's a logic disconnect here, and then, unfortunately, some of the media uh, promote some of the silly sides of all this, and before you know it, it's the perfect storm to sit back and do absolutely nothing until the next major fire rolls through. Ronald Stein, founder and ambassador for energy and infrastructure at PTS Advance. We appreciate your time and insights, information on the web at ptsadvance.com. All right, 545, we're going to step aside, get you updated on some traffic right quick from the KFAX Traffic Center.